Thank you, Jessica. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, the title of the message today is Heaven. What do you think about when you think about heaven, when you hear that word? Stories told of two guys that were playing golf, and they really wanted to know, is there going to be golf in heaven? So they made a deal with each other. They said, whichever one of us dies first, the other one's got to figure out a way to come back and tell the other one if there's golf in heaven. Sure enough, one of the guys died about a week later, showed back up to his friend. He said, I got some good news and bad news. He said, well, give me the good news first. Good news is there is golf in heaven. What's the bad news? You got a tea time Monday morning. <clears throat> now, I tell you that, first of all, just to get a cheap laugh. But secondly, why is that bad news? Why is that bad news to know that you're going to be in heaven Monday morning? I think we have a lot of misconceptions about heaven. In fact, I want to deal with that at the close of the message. Just a few things that I hear in, in just conversations. I've been taking notes, talking to people. And so there's some misconceptions about heaven that we're going to address at the end. But I really like what a little girl said to her father. Walked outside on a starry night and she said, oh, daddy. And he said, what? She said, if the wrong side of heaven looks this good, what must the right side look like? You ever thought about heaven? You ever spend any time doing that? See, some people will say, well, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. Do you know Jesus talked about heaven? And would you acknowledge that he did a lot of earthly good? Absolutely. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. That's convicting to me. Is it okay to think about heaven? Is it okay to daydream about where you're going to spend eternity? Yeah, it, it's good to think about that. In fact, God wanted us to know at least a little bit about heaven. That's why we have some glimpses into heaven in the pages of Scripture. This morning we're going to look at one from Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading from just the first verse and read just the scene in heaven. Really two points this morning. The scene in heaven and then the activity in heaven. In other words, what does heaven look like? And we're not going to get all the details. Okay? There's going to be parts of Revelation you're going to read and say, i got questions. Well, I do too. Well, let's catch the scene that we get from John in Revelation. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature was like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So we know that John was on the island of Patmos. Why was he there? He was there because he was a prisoner. He was there on an island banished from the rest of the world. And we know that he was probably close to 90 years old. And John has a vision. In fact, back in chapter 1, we see a lot of this imagery already beginning to be fleshed out. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus dictates to him letters to seven different churches. And he says to John, hey, everything that you see, I want you to write and put it in a book. And I want you to send it to these seven churches, knowing that those seven churches would then share them with the rest of the world. And yes, I believe the letters to the seven churches were written to seven specific churches. I think they were dealing with issues of that contemporary time, that, that time in eternity and that time in past. But I think God wanted us to hear the letters as well. So now we get to verse 1 of chapter 4, and he says, after these things. After what things? Well, after the letters, then after these things, I looked up and behold, this door in heaven. It's already open. When John sees it, it's already open. And he hears a voice, and he, he specifies the first voice. Which voice is that? You go back, and that's how he described it back in uh, chapter 1 of Revelations. Who's he talking about? Jesus. He sees Jesus walking among seven golden lampstands, which represent the church. And Jesus speaks to him back in Revelation chapter 1 and says, write these things down, what I'm about to show you. So he hears that same voice again. And that voice says, come up here. I don't know how that looked. I don't know what that looked like. But for the most of the rest of Revelation, John's view is going to be from heaven. And what Jesus says you're going to see is things which must take place. I love that. There, there's no sense of what we read as any of this is going to be coincidence. Any of this is just circumstantial. This is part of the sovereign plan of God. God has a purpose. And when Jesus says, I want to show you what must take place, he's saying, this is what is necessary to take place. And so a lot of what we're going to hear from John is going to be things that will take place in the future. But he gets a glimpse of heaven. Have other people ever seen glimpses into heaven? I don't know. There's, there's modern books. There's stories of people who say, hey, I've been to heaven. They've written books about it. Well, there's also been people throughout Scripture if you, if you got your Bibles open and, and don't mind turning, look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because something strikes me about the biblical references to heaven and the response of those people who caught the glimpse. Something strikes me differently about them and some of the contemporary stories that I hear. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, Boasting is necessary. Verse 1. Boasting is necessary. Though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. What does he mean by third heaven? Well, they viewed the first heaven as what you see when you look out, just the atmosphere that we're in. Second, seven, second heaven was what was beyond our atmosphere, the, the planets, the stars. The third heaven was where God was. I was caught up in 
to the third heaven into paradise, heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish. For if I will be speaking the truth, but if I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. What's Paul saying? It, it sounds a little confusing. I think Paul's talking about himself. This was something that happened to the Apostle Paul, but it so humbled him that, first of all, he didn't even want to refer to it as something that had happened to him because he didn't want any credit for it. And he also said, I can't even say to you. It, words would fail me to try to express what I experienced in heaven. Then the passage we read during worship, Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. In fact, it, it goes on. But what is Isaiah's response? I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And there's these seraphim that are flying and ministering, serving the Lord. Remember what Isaiah's response to that was? Verse 5. What? Woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah realized, I've seen the throne room of God. And I realize who I am in light of that. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I think John had that same sense. Back in Revelation chapter 1, we see him fall on his face before Jesus. And we're going to see that same thing here. So the first voice said, come up here. I must show you what will take place after these things. And John said, immediately I'm in the Spirit. We saw him back in chapter 1 saying, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And here's what I saw. Now, I've had this voice tell me to come up to heaven. I've seen this door open. And here's the first thing he said he saw. I saw a throne. A throne. They had seen thrones back in those days. You and I are not that familiar with thrones anymore. But kings throughout history have had thrones. Sometimes they were movable thrones where they could take them from one place to another. The one that John sees, he says, I saw a throne standing in heaven. And the word for standing is one of permanence, fixed position. But what they knew about thrones was it was the seat of authority, the seat of power. So what John sees is, is the throne of God in the throne room of heaven fixed in its position. The word throne is used 62 times in the whole New Testament. 47 of those times it's used in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's mentioned 11 times just in this chapter, the word throne. John says, the first thing that I saw was this symbol of sovereign majesty that signified rule and judgment. Then he said, the one sitting on the throne was like. John uses that word like 65 times in the book of Revelation. It doesn't mean that he's a valley girl, you know, going, it's, it's like this, man. It's like, it was that John is seeing stuff you could not describe. And so he's saying it was, the best I can tell you is it was like this. It, what I saw was indescribable in human words, so I'm just giving you the best explanation I can give you. And so he's given the explanation of this is what God looked like. And he said it was like a jasper stone. This gemstone is an opaque jewel, often reddish, but it could also be green, brown, blue, yellow, or white. Toward the end of the book, we see the word used again because it's part of the building material for the walls of the new city of God. In fact, it's listed among the 12 foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. The first one mentioned was the jasper stone. 
Then he said he was also sardius in appearance. Again, a fiery red stone, very popular in the ancient world, probably where the term Sardis came from, which one of the nearby cities, one of the letters was written to the church at Sardis. So probably a stone that came from that area. So John has seen the throne. He's seen one sitting on the throne, and he's not getting overly descriptive by that. And he goes on to talk about this rainbow that encircled the throne. You and I have never seen a circular rainbow happen. Why is that? Well, because we have horizons that we look at, and we see a rainbow stretch from horizon to horizon. I've even seen double rainbows. What was the rainbow a symbol of in the Old Testament? It was a covenant of God. God had destroyed the world by a flood. And then he made a promise. And it's a good thing he made the promise. If you had been alive in the days of Noah, well, for one thing, unless you were Noah or one of his relatives, you would have died. Okay? So we now have Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. So what does that add up to? Eight people. If you had just experienced the flood and the next time it rained, what would you be thinking? You better get back on the boat, all right? Everything's about to perish again. No. So God said, I'll make a covenant with you. I will never destroy the world again with a flood. So the next time you see the waters rising, the next time it rains, you're not going to have to worry about that. So it was this sign of covenant between God and man. So that's what one of the things that, that uh, John sees around the throne, but it uses the word, it encircled the thrones. So I don't think it was a rainbow. It just went from horizon to horizon. I think it radiated out of the throne. And the way he described it, it was like an emerald in appearance. Most emeralds that we're familiar with are green, but there were some that could be transparent, like a crystal that could serve as a prism. One of the things, this is just my opinion, but folks, I think we're going to see colors in heaven that we've never experienced before. Rainbows down here, kind of a prism effect, gives us seven colors. I just imagine that what John saw would have blown our mind and was hard for him to describe. He's doing the best he can. So he sees the throne. He sees the one sitting on the throne, a rainbow around it. Then he saw some other thrones. And he sees these 24 elders, as they're described, sitting on their thrones. Now, who are these people? Or are they people? If you want to go study commentaries this afternoon, you can read four commentaries and come up with five opinions on who these 24 were. Some think they were angelic beings. Some think they were perhaps representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. The word is the word presbyteros, which means elder. Okay? One of the best explanations that I've seen is this. In the Old Testament temple, there were 24 officers representing the 24 courses of the Levitical priest, and their job in the temple was to facilitate worship. And I think part of what these guys do, these elders do, is that they worship. So he saw the throne, he saw 24 other thrones. And, and let me get you to relax a little bit. If you get at a point in Revelation and you're like, I just, I got to know. Then you're going you're gonna to end in about the first chapter. You've got to be okay getting to some place in Revelation saying, okay, this is kind of the best idea. I want to get the whole book in, in, in its sense, in its context. And I may not be able to tell you, this is what this means, this is what this means. And, and guys that have done that, some of them are wrong. And some of our theology about Revelation has come from picking a little bit from this one and a little bit from this one, and we're all wrong because it couldn't possibly work out to be that way. So be careful with that, that you don't get overly, you know, i got to know who these 24 elders are. I don't know. 
Bible's not real clear on that. And there are multiple opinions about who they might be. Out from the throne then comes something that we've seen elsewhere in Scripture. But here's how John described it. Flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Back in Exodus chapter 19, before, before Moses goes up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, out of the mountain of God came these flashes of lightning and these peals of thunder. And Moses says to the people, let's all go meet God. And they, they recognized this represented God for them. And then I saw these lamps of fire, seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've already been introduced to that back in the Old Testament. So is there one Holy Spirit or seven? There's one Holy Spirit. He is a person of the Godhead. But when he is described in his fullness, it's the seven spirits of God, represented by these blazing torches that signify the presence of God. Then in front of the throne was something, again, he uses the word like, because was it a sea in front of the throne? No. How do we know that? Later on in the book of Revelation, we find out there's no sea in heaven. Okay? I don't know if we're going to be able to fish somewhere else, (laughs) but there's no sea in heaven according to Scripture. But he said it was like a sea of glass. And at the time when this was written, glass was usually very dark. And so he's trying to describe it looked glassy, it kind of reflected, and yet it was transparent. You could see through it. And can you imagine all the color that he's experiencing and then seeing it reflected in this crystal glass? I mean, what a picture of heaven. Are you getting a visual image of what John saw? Folks, we can get a little. We can't experience fully what John saw. But this morning we can get just a little. So this sea of glass like a crystal. And then he saw these living creatures. We've seen these in other parts of Scripture. Ezekiel, even I think it's the same creatures that we see in the passage that Jacob read for us this morning. And that was Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 about the seraphim that fly constantly and minister around the throne. It calls them creatures. I don't want you to get the idea that these were animals, okay? I think they were angelic beings that had a face. One of them had a face like a lion. One had a face like a calf. One had a face like a man. One was like a flying eagle. And it says they are covered in eyes. Now, that's weird, okay? That kind of blows our mind a little bit, and we're thinking, I just can't even imagine that. But what is the point of all that? Well, the point of all this is, They're there to serve God. So whatever they're doing, they constantly could have not just an eye on God. They had multiple eyes on God, but also multiple eyes on us. And I think that's all that John's trying to paint a picture is that they were all seeing. They were part of ministering to God. Well, that's what John saw. Let's look at the activity in heaven. Each of them... Each of these had six wings, and they did not cease. Literally, there was no intermission. There was no cessation of them worshiping. What are the creatures doing? They're worshiping. And what are they saying in Isaiah 6 and again in Revelation 4? They're saying this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why three times? Well, in the Old Testament, they didn't have a lot of adjectives. And so when they wanted to say something was very much like this, they just repeated it twice. Only one time in all of Scripture, Old Testament or New, that a word is repeated three times, and that is the word holy. Why do you think they do that? 
Because I think they're trying to say the most important thing we can say about God. The most important characteristic of God is this. He is holy. And folks, you and I struggle getting that. Understanding what the word holy even means. It means separate from that which is common. It means unlike anything you and I could ever experience. God is pure, sacred, morally blameless, separate from common use. We run out of descriptions. But understand this, the most important thing you can say about God is He's holy. He's high and lifted up. He's the, it's the summation of all that God is. Holy, holy, holy. And I just got to ask you, if you experienced that, if you were John, how would you respond? If you really catch a glimpse even today of the holiness of God, how do we respond to that? Folks, the most natural response, or maybe the most supernatural response would be to worship. I just got to tell you this. When you encounter God in His holiness... You're not going to be worried about you. And, and I just want to say, I love some of the contemporary music. I really do. But watch music that's all about you. I think part of what we miss in some of our music is the music's all about us. And it needs to be all about God. Because He is holy. And what's the response of these angelic beings? It is to worship. What do the 24 elders do? They worship. They fall before Him. They take their crowns off their head, which was a symbol from the Old and New Testament, which would have meant something to people that were reading this. When you were a lesser being, lesser king even, coming into the kingdom of someone more sovereign than you, you take your crown off. Why? Because you're not even worthy to wear it. So when these beings are saying, holy, 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 the elders fall down. And worship Him and cast their crowns. Literally throw their crowns before Him. What are they saying? It's all about you. And it's nothing about me. Worthy are you to receive glory. Here's what God is worthy of. Here's what He's worthy to receive. First, glory. Honor. And last, power. That's what God's worthy of. Why? Because you created all things. And for you, all things were created. Because of your will, they existed. Literally, because of your determination, because of your choice, because of your sovereign act, this all exists. It was created by you and for you, and nothing that is created would exist apart from you. Well, that's the scene that John saw. That's the activity that John saw. And folks, I'm with you, okay? I wish we had more detail. I wish we had a video. Okay, we don't have that. But I want to close with just a few misconceptions about heaven. I started working on this this week, and I could have come up with a lot more. I didn't want to bore you. I'm just going to give you five, and really the first three kind of fit, could fit into one. First misconception I hear about heaven is heaven is boring. Now, don't raise your hand, but you ever thought that? What are we going to do for eternity? Heaven's boring. Maybe even you look at this picture and you think, is that all we're going to do? Is just worship? For eternity? Is that boring? Let me tell you, heaven's not going to be boring. I don't know exactly all the activity that we're going to be doing in heaven, but I promise you, you're not going to get there and after 10,000 years go, anything else on? 
Second misconception is that we're going to sit on clouds and play harps for eternity. Where did that come from? You are not going to be playing a harp for eternity. You're not going to be sitting on a cloud. And number three, you're not going to be an angel. That'll blow some of your minds right there. You think when you die, you're going to go to heaven and just become one of the angels. No, the angels were created beings. You're not one of them. What are you? You're a saint of God. You're not an angel. Now, the next one is going to offend some of you. And I'm not saying it to offend you. I just want to correct some thinking. Number four misconception is that we're going to be watching earth. A lot of people have this impression that we're going to be, you know, once we get to heaven, we're going to be in the presence of God, but we're really going to be tuning in to the History Channel or something and watching planet Earth. I don't even think we're going to have Facebook in heaven. Now, I'm okay with you posting things on Facebook to a dear loved one that has departed. I realize that may be therapeutic for you. I just don't think they're reading it. And I want you to think about this. I mean, some people are scared to death that granddaddy's watching over them. I mean, think about that. Number one, how depressing that would be for them. To be watching me when I mess up. And some people say, well, yeah, but what about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Let's read that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Leave that up there. So what about this cloud of witnesses? Now, preachers disagree on this one, okay? The ones who don't see it the same way I do are just wrong. I'll give you a theological term. It's a poor hermeneutic. Write that down. What are they saying? Well, it's all right. So there's this cloud of witnesses. It's like in heaven, there's this, it's a spectator sport. There's this grandstand, and I'm in the race, and they're cheering me on. Well, there's a lot of people I really like that think that's what heaven's going to look like. I don't see it that way. When they wrote Hebrews, when they wrote any of the books of the Bible, the New Testament, they weren't divided into chapters. They were just written. And so we have this break between 11 and 12. Well, what does chapter 11 talk about? Well, go count it sometime. I think there's about 16 specific names that are mentioned. But then it says, hey, I, I don't even have time to mention some of these other people. He's running, the writer of Hebrews is running out of room. What he's been talking about, Hebrews chapter 11 is a picture of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, he is telling you about men and women who demonstrated faith. And so here's what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 means. It means that they're not watching us. We're watching them. He's just giving you this example in Hebrews chapter 11 of men and women who live their life by faith. And he's saying, because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of, and the word is martyr. Because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of martyrs, translated witnesses, let us run our race. In other words, the way they ran their race ought to inspire me because I'm watching them. They're not watching me. So one of those misconceptions in this day and age is that we're just going to get to heaven and then, you know, flip channels and kind of watch what you're doing. Last one, and I guess the most important one, is this. Not everybody's going. Not everybody's going. When I was a teenager, things have changed a lot. <laughs> you're saying, well, duh, you're old. When I was a teenager, a lot of what I heard was this. How could a loving God send people 
to hell? Well, there's an answer for that. But what I hear more now is this. We're all going to heaven. We're just getting there different ways. We need to respect that other people are going to, you know, they're on their own path. They're dancing to the beat of a different drummer. Is that true? Well, here's what Jesus said. I remember a conversation when I was a teenager. Somebody said, Robert, you think there'll be more people in heaven or more people in hell? And I said, oh, obviously more people in heaven. God's going to win. Then I read Matthew 7 that said, enter by the narrow gate. Take the harder road because that's the road to heaven and there's few who choose that road. The rest of the world's kind of going on the broad road with the big gate. And Jesus gets to Matthew 7 verse 21. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Then in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, he's trying to comfort his disciples. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you say, preacher, that sounds awfully narrow-minded. It is. It is. But it's a loving God who offers to you mercy and grace. I want you to check out some of the other world religions. It ain't the same. So to say to one, you're getting in by God's mercy and grace, you're getting in by doing the best you can on these five things. Is that God? No. No. I think the biggest misconception about heaven today is everybody's going. Y'all aren't going to remember Phil Donahue. Okay, so just don't worry about it. Just listen. Phil Donahue was, I guess, the first talk show host before, you know, Jerry or any of those people. He would walk around with a microphone, and I remember specifically talking about, he was talking about heaven one day. He said, here's how I think it's going to be at the end of time. God's going to look at all of mankind, and he's going to go, come on. That is not the way it's going down, people. God's not going to look disapprovingly at you and let you in by the skin of your teeth. Here's what you want to hear from God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. How did I get to heaven? It's because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Listen, when Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Folks, if there was any other way, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. Why did he have to die on the cross? Because he had to pay the penalty for your sin that separated you from God. But because he's done that, I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I can spend eternity in heaven at a place that we catch a glimpse of this morning. So what? What's the so what for this morning? Listen, it's great to dream about heaven. It's great to read about it. We're going to study some more about it next week. But folks, make sure you're going. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Between you and the Lord... You need to answer that question. Are you sure? Are you sure that you're going to heaven? 
Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. He said, His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. So maybe just ask God today, Hey, am I one of your children? And if you're not sure about that, settle it today. Or if you know you're very certain that you're not his child, I implore you, beseech you, beg you today, come to Jesus. Father, thank you for a glimpse into heaven. We recognize that it's just enough. It's like an appetizer. It whets our appetite. One day we're going to experience it. One day we're going to see you face to face. And God, it's not going to be about how many sermons I heard preached on heaven or anything that I memorized. It's not going to be about my effort. It's going to be about you. So, Father, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die in my place so that I could know you and spend eternity with you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand.